This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. In Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Grace, 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 community, community, community and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Today we are in our third week in our walk through the Minor Prophets, and we are going to see in this journey that one of the key roles of the prophets is to speak on behalf of God to the people in order to motivate them toward repentance. And God, in how he works with his people, he uses the different personalities of the prophets in their different contexts in order to change his mode for how he is trying to motivate his people. You know, often for us to be on a healthy path or to be moving in a good or right direction, we need to have the right motivations. We need to have something that sort of clicks into place to say, this will change the game for why you want to move forward, why you want to change. Scripture itself is full of a diversity of ways in which God is working to draw his people into a right and a good place. God is creative in how he does this. Sometimes he pulls people back in with just a whisper in a wind. Sometimes he has someone thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish. Sometimes he comes to people in stillness, sometimes in a storm. Sometimes it's going to feel like a comforting embrace, and sometimes it's going to feel like a kick in the pants. But he knows our hearts. He switches up his tactics like this because he understands us and our circumstances and our experiences. And he does what he needs to in order to get his people back to him, in order to motivate them, in order to have that thing click into place. And in the prophets, we're going to see him do this, and we're going to see him do this with a lot of patience, a lot of mercy, and a lot of faithfulness. As he is sort of going to be repeating the same theme over and over again, but in some different ways. Repeated, we're going to see God saying, I need you to repent. I need you to come back to me. And for a lot of us who've been in church space for many years, repentance can start to be a word that just sort of rolls off the tongue without us really feeling the weight and the implications of it. Yeah, we're supposed to repent. We're supposed to acknowledge our sin. We're supposed to confess. We're supposed to make a conscious effort to turn away. Often in Sunday school for me growing up, repentance was turning away from your sin. But a key part of our repentance, it's not just an acknowledgement. It's not just a turning away. Repentance is actually a return. But what are we returning to? Well, today we are in Joel, and Joel does really a beautiful job of showing us the power of repentance and how it is a return to something on a cosmic level. Joel is going to give us a greater perspective of what repentance does as a way for God to motivate us. We like to keep our need to repent or our acts of repentance in the smallest circle possible. It's just between me and God. It's just between me and this person. But God's message in Joel is that when it comes to your need to repent, the buck doesn't stop with you. 
And while that may make us squirm a little bit, when you consider what that means about the power of real repentance, it is incredibly motivating that that act can pack a punch on a cosmic level. So a few notes on Joel as we move into the text and we hear these things. We don't know a lot about him. All we really know for sure from verse 1 is that he's the son of Pethuel. Most of the prophets we know more about. They usually indicate who they're talking to, which kings are at play at that time, or where they even live, but Joel leaves us very few clues. People think most likely he was in Judah, but there is even a lot of debate about how to even date him. So we have a prophet who isn't necessarily rooted himself in a specific era of history. No king, no datable event is even mentioned. But herein, I think, lies a level of Joel's significance in that his core message is transcendent of all time. The concerns that Joel vocalizes on behalf of God and for the people is rooted in present life, yet it also exists outside the confines of human history. So in Joel chapter 1, he begins with this call to pay attention. And he does this by linking the generations. So in Joel chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we read, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children about it and let your children tell their children and their children, the next generation. So here he calls to the elders, which would be thought of as the judges from the past, and he links them directly with the children and the generations yet to come. So right away, it's like Joel is saying, I need you all to listen because this message that I have for you is transcendent of the time that you live in. It's for all who have gone before, it's all for those yet to come. And instantly then in chapter one, and a little bit more throughout the book, he moves into this image of locusts. Locusts are very important imagery in scripture. Sometimes it can mean troops or enemies marching in, but often, and here, Locusts are used to make a point about something that has negatively affected the flourishing of people and the earth. Something with savage hostility has swept in and it has caused destruction against people, how they are supposed to operate, and how the earth is supposed to work. Listen to and feel the intensity of what this is causing with some of these images in chapter 1. Teeth are the teeth of a lion. It has the fangs of a lioness. It's devastated my grapevine. It's splintered my tree. It's stripped off the bark and thrown it away. Offerings are cut off. Fields are destroyed. The land itself grieves. Grain is destroyed. Wine is dried up. Oil fails. Be ashamed, wail, and mourn. Verse 12 says the grapevine is dried up. The fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the date palm, and the apple, all the trees of the orchard have withered. Indeed, human joy has dried up. So Joel starts with, you all need to pay attention. 
and look at the magnitude of devastation brought into society and the natural environment. And we know this isn't a literal locust swarm. It's caused by something else. All these images here are supposed to be counter to a fruitful harvest. Harvest is supposed to be when everything that has flourished can be gathered, and it was a time of great joy for the people. But something has happened that has overturned a time that is supposed to be abundance into a time that is loss, to the point that human joy is dried up. This is a dire situation they are in. So if we're not talking about literal locusts, which we know and they know, we are still talking about a very real attack from something that has stripped away life. So Joel says, let me tell you what you need to do for us to understand what this is coming from. So chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 say, Dress in sackcloth and lament, you priests. Wail, you ministers of the altar. Come and spend the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, because grain and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Announce a sacred fast. Proclaim an assembly. Gather the elders and all the residents of the land at the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So the first step, when the impact of such destruction is felt and seen is to stop, direct your full attention to coming before God in the most lowly of postures, your full body engaged in this process of grief. Have the impact of the destruction move you so much that all you're able to do is mourn, cry out, and lament before God and with and in view of your community. Be so engaged in your lamenting that all you can do is go before God. Let it affect all of who you are and do it publicly. And he makes this key connection for us then in verse 15. Woe because of that day, for the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty. The day of the Lord is near. So everything that has caused a lack of flourishing for people in this space, the thing that has put you in such a posture of grief and loss and needing to humble yourself, Joel says this connects to the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is a very common, but it is a complex term and idea and concept that we have a lot in prophetic literature. And depending upon the context in which it's used, it can sometimes point to some different things. Sometimes it is purely past. It is pointing to events and times when God has already worked to rescue his people. Oftentimes it is pointing to something in the future oftentimes pointing to some sort of judgment that's coming up, and the images can feel intense and foreboding. In Joel, we have a day of darkness, a day of blood. We have images of smoke. God coming for this day in chapter 2, Joel uses all these images of war. So this language can feel sometimes harsh, maybe off-putting for, for some of us with this, but this is what we're supposed to feel from this. Because remember, the prophets, it's poetry, it's prose. It's supposed to 
give us these images that um, stir up emotions. So when we hear these images about the day of the Lord, especially with what we have going on in Joel so far, what are we supposed to feel and recognize? We should feel that whatever is going on here that causes God to come with such intensity, this is serious. This is not something that we trifle with. What has been done by people to evoke such a response from God? It's weighty, it's heavy, it's a big deal. And depending upon your position with God, the day of the Lord is either terror and judgment or relief and mercy. Because it's a day when God is going to show up to switch up the order of things. So depending upon your relation with him and your relation to people and to the world, God coming in to switch up the order of things, it's either going to be a day of fear or a day of great joy. So Joel here is connecting the havoc wreaked on earth, the way it is so badly affecting people with the day of the Lord. And it's him saying destruction has happened because of something you did. Something you did has negatively affected the order of society, the order of nature, and the order of relationship. The responsibility for this devastation and its outcomes, you hold that. It is because of something you have done that life has turned to death, that joy and gladness are cut off. We all have played a part in why the world is as broken as it is. None of us are off the hook. So if we have responsibility here, what do we do? Well, before Joel gets to that answer for us more, he throws in a reference that actually gives us a grander perspective of what is at play here. So Joel chapter 2, verse 3, says, A fire devours in front of them and behind them a flame blazes. The land in front of them is like the Garden of Eden, but behind them it is like a desert wasteland. There is no escape from them. So fire is a common image for divine judgment. So here in Joel chapter 2, verse 3, we have the impact of God's judgment coming, which is coming to change the order of things. So when judgment comes, the order is changed. What lies on the other side of that is the same as what was in the beginning. So this comparison here is devastation caused by their actions. The word here, it's a wasteland. And that's compared with the Garden of Eden, this lush flourishing of Yahweh's initial creation. So Joel is connecting current posture of repentance with the culmination of human history with the day of the Lord, which will be a bringing us back to Eden. The perfection, the shalom, the joy, and the abundance of Eden is what lies in the future. A present posture of repentance is connected to final restoration 
and the beginning of time as God created it and meant it to be. But how do we get there? Because we have God's righteousness, we have his justice in punishing sin, and we have our sin, which has caused such devastation. How do we get there? Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Even now. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. So you can offer grain and wine to the Lord your God. All this devastation, judgment coming, and yet even now, with two words, the game changes. Even now, when it seems like the devastation is too far gone, even now when it seems impossible that what is only bringing death could actually bring life again. Even now when it seems like the decisions of people in the course of human history has caused so much bad that nothing good can happen. Even now when it seems like people's hearts are so hard that they cannot change. Even now when you are feeling like your own words and actions and patterns have made you unable to be right and free again. Even now when the consequences of your decisions are burying you. Even now when you have been a part of systems of oppression for your whole being. Even now when you have a history of perpetuating a bad theology or a false gospel. Even now when your family history has blood on its hands. Even now when it seems impossible for you to change, to go back, to find a way out, to heal or to be free. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart. Even now, turn to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. Even now, tear your hearts. Even now, return to the Lord your God. If you're holding back from repentance because of fear that it's a very harsh place to go, look at this soft place we have to land with God. When you go to him genuinely, tear your hearts and not just your clothes, is an invitation to real repentance. It's not a show we put on. We have all witnessed false repentance. We have all been guilty of false repentance. If your repentance is visible, but not real in the convictions of your heart, it's fake. If your repentance is felt, but it's not visible by your actions, it's false. If your repentance does not motivate you to try to make right what you have done wrong, it's fake. 
If your repentance drives you to hide rather than try to bring things to light, it's fake repentance. If your repentance is a lot of talk with no real change, it's fake. If your repentance gives you license to avoid those that you've wronged, it's fake repentance. Spiritual brokenness must be internal and it must be visible externally. It is a tearing of the heart and the clothes. Real repentance also here is in community. It's not an act of isolation because sin is never an act of isolation. Our seemingly individual private sins always affect relationally. Even those sins in your mind and the privacy of your spaces, what you think is just between you and God, that affects others. It affects how you think of, how you relate to other people, and how you interact with God. It affects who you are as a real, genuine person. Sin is always relational, so repentance must always be relational. If you need to repent of things and you keep kind of trying to skirt by with keeping it between you and God only, your repentance is false. And while it can be heavy to consider how our sin affects so much more than we often acknowledge, consider then also the meaningfulness and the far-reaching effects of your repentance for it. Hear these words and images of the fruit of repentance from Joel 2 and Joel 3. We have words about being satiated. We have bearing of fruit, yielding of riches, rejoicing in gladness, showers, full of grain, vats are overflowing, new wine, fresh oil, God repaying for the years when things have been devoured. The mountains are dripping with sweet wine, the hills are flowing with milk, the streams are flowing with water, a spring is issued from the Lord's house. These are images of abundance and flourishing after repentance has taken place. The fruit of real repentance is flourishing. The fruit of real repentance is, in effect, a returning to Eden. Communal and genuine repentance is so powerful that it turns the tide on devastation and destruction that sin has caused in creation. Repentance in the present ushers in abundance and flourishing. It is a return to the world just as God rightly created it to be, when there was shalom and peace and unity between God and us, between us and other people, between us and the world. Our repentance has cosmic implications. It's greater than just our individual being made right before God, which is a wonder and a miracle. Thanks be to God for that. But it is an act and a posture we do and take that is a direct affront to the infection of sin and all of its effects upon the world. Because a surrender to repentance and a movement in that way is like you're looking sin and evil and darkness and pain and devastation right in the eye and saying, there's a better way. Actively moving toward repentance 
and facing our sin head on is us putting our money where our mouth is when we say we believe in a God who is going to redeem all things. Repentance is us, you know, directly acknowledging where we've contributed to the decay and the downfall. And repentance is making war upon your sin by saying there is a better way and it's God's way. Repentance is this catalyst that takes things from a state of desolation to abundance. It takes things from death to life. Sin, decay, and death is actually a reversal of what is supposed to be the right order of things. And our repentance is like we are partaking in the work of the kingdom of God to reverse the reversal, to set things back right again. And we are able in faith to partake in this life that comes from repentance because of what our God has assured us. In Joel chapter two, verses 25 through 27, he says, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate, the young locusts, the destroying locusts, and the devouring locusts. My great army that I sent against you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. You will know that I am present in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. Where many of us hide out from repentance and we avoid it often for fear of exposure, twice here God says the actual result of real genuine repentance is that I am going to ensure that you are never going to be put to shame. We fear confessing and acknowledging our sin because we feel it's going to bring us shame when actually real repentance brings us freedom from the shame of our sin. And the release of the shame and the guilt and the captivity of our sin frees us up to take part in the wondrous works of our God in redemption. In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, he says, After this, after all of these things, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem as the Lord promised. Among the survivors, the Lord calls. So in this nod towards Pentecost towards this coming together as God's people, towards the Spirit being poured out. What follows from real repentance and the pushing back of sin and the returning to God's right order is that His Spirit is just unleashed on His people. 
And the day of the Lord, which looks like judgment, turns into salvation for some. The release of sin and the captivity that we are choosing to reside in and the freeing up of creation to be back where it needs to be, that goes hand in hand with his spirit residing with his people so that his name is elevated and proclaimed. That through him the world can know where there is salvation, where there is an escape from what is hopeless, what is desolate, what is destructive, what is empty, and what is unfruitful. And with his spirit as his children, we're able to let the world know there's a better way. And we do that, we demonstrate that when we are a people who repent. Repentance is a way of straight up saying to the world, there's a better way. This is how you get there. Being a people who repent is built into what it is to belong to God. For those who claim Christ, there can be no redemption without repentance, no reconciliation without repentance. There's no taking part in that final restoration without repentance. Repentance is not optional. It's not a one-time thing. It's not something we choose only when we are in the mood. It's the way to life. It's the way to flourishing, to freedom, and to abundance. Repentance, a rhythm of repentance in your life, it is necessary, required, if you are going to be a part of the work of pushing back against the darkness, against lies, against evil, against deception. Repentance is this matter of life and death. For you and your salvation through the repair of your relationship with God, yes. But also for your ability to partake in life-giving relationship while you are here in this time and place. It's necessary for your ability to relate well to others, to society, to the earth, in a way that will produce abundance rather than devastation, and desolation. It's what enables you to um, take, a, take part in the flourishing and in fruit instead of leaving wasteland behind you. So do not delay repentance. Consider where are you resisting? Where are you ignoring the urging of the Holy Spirit? Where are you pushing aside the voices of those in your community? Where are you making excuses for why you cannot yet respond? Where are you refusing to let yourself believe that your lack of repentance is having serious consequences? Whether for your secret sins or your corporate ones. Where are you thinking that by not repenting, you are keeping yourself safe. Friends, avoiding the acknowledgement and the exposure of your sin is not sitting in safety, that's sitting in captivity. When God uses the voices of his prophets like Joel to motivate us with some strong language and some um, intense images, it's not because he's calling us out of safety. He's calling us out of slavery, out of captivity. And his call to repent, while it does mean we're gonna probably be uncomfortable, we're gonna feel exposed, it's gonna be painful at times, it's actually a call to the safest place that you could ever be. It helps you come back to having unity and peace and shalom with a God.
His call to repent is a call to come back home to where he has created us to flourish the most. His call for our repentance is him inviting us out of our captive spaces for our sake and for the life of the world. Repent because the day of the Lord is coming, a day that for those who have repented will be marked by celebration and joy and abundance. Do not fear to go there, to acknowledge your sin and its effects. Do not be afraid even where you feel like your sins are too far gone, that the effects are too deep. For even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. For who knows, he may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who is so patient, who is so long-suffering, who is so faithful to us that while we are a people so undeserving, you continue to make all these efforts to draw us back, to motivate us. So I ask that you would help us to see more clearly based on the movement of your spirit and the urging upon us. Help us to see more clearly, Father, where it is that we need to acknowledge our sin, to grieve, to mourn over it. Help us not to be afraid to bring that to light, but instead, Father, help us to understand the power and the freedom that lies on the other side of exposing sin. I thank you, Father, that even in the midst of that process, you are with us every step of the way. I ask, Father, for us to be a body of Christ, a body of Christ in our country that is marked by acts of real, genuine repentance. Forgive us for the ways, Father, that we have resisted repenting out of our own pride, out of our own misshapen theology out of us aligning love of power or money with our love of you. I ask, Father, just for the church in America in general, in this specific place, Father, that you would help us to be moved to repent in a way that is so public and so genuine that people would actually see who you really are through us a God who is here to turn the order of things back to what is good and what is right, what is the best for us and what makes your name great. We ask for your help in these things because we know we need you to do it. Help us, Father, just to have postures of humility, to be listening well and to move when you say go. We love you and in your name we pray, amen. Please hear the benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, 
To him be glory both in the church and in Christ Jesus, now and forever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.